This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. I'm going to use the voter analogy when it comes to data. If 90% of the populace votes for one person and 10% votes for another person, at the end of the day, you would go with what 90% of the information or voter population says, right? That's what you would do. So in data analytics, if the majority, the grand majority of the information is pointing us towards one way, that's the direction you go, but you do not discount the other 10%. That's gotta be key. You have to say, here's the data in its entirety. Here's what the data is telling us. That's John Tollerson talking about gaining trust with patients when discussing healthcare data. We'll hear more from John in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Spend more time doing what you love, caring for patients, and less time on clinical documentation. Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, captures the patient story securely and accurately to automatically document at the point of care for increased efficiency and patient throughput. Discover how DAX provides a better patient experience and eliminates afterward documentation. Visit nuance.com slash DAX to sign up for a live stream demo and explore how DAX, Nuance's ambient clinical intelligence solution can transform your organization. Our guest today is John Tollerson, Chief Medical Information Officer, Kalispell Regional Healthcare. John is here today to talk about how to examine analytics to make data more meaningful to patients and staff and how that analysis can provide vital insights into organizational performance. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. At, uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about data and analytics and clinical correlations. That's, uh, that's, that's why I do this. <laughs> That's great. Now, you're Chief Medical Information Officer at Kalispell Regional Healthcare. Tell us a little bit about that group. Tell us about the size and scope of the practice. Sure thing. Uh, so Kalispell Regional, soon to be Logan Health, we're rebranding uh, because we are taking on three new um, critical access hospitals in addition to the three hospitals that are already in our network. Uh, one hospital we simply absorb due to proximity, and the other one will stay, you know, as an independent hospital within our umbrella. So there'll be, uh, at the end of the day, it'll be five 
uh, independent practicing hospitals under our corporate umbrella. Uh, 36 uh, clinics, 14 outreach, and then once we incorporate the other three hospitals, that number will grow to somewhere around 62 uh, to 64 practices, depending on how you count outreach clinics. So uh, mm -hmm. we service Northwest Montana, that region, uh, beautiful part of the world. So, Right, it, it really is. And so you're in Montana. We think about that as a big, you know, wide open spaces. So what's the breakdown then of uh, the rural health side, rural patient population for you guys? Um, in Montana, almost all Montana is rural, except for maybe the five or six, uh, you know, towns or cities that, that incorporate any, time, any kind of size. So the grand majority of our practices are, are rural. Kalispell itself is, is a city, uh, so that's not going to, you know, necessarily be rural in and of itself. But, you know, the 80, 85 percent of our catchment is all going to be within rural uh, populations, rural counties, uh, townships, etc. Um, there's a few other, you know, you, you would not call them, you know, they probably wouldn't even qualify as cities in other in other states, but other kind of larger towns. You know, that's going to be Bozeman, that's going to be Missoula. Uh, Billings is the largest uh, city by far uh, in Montana. That's going to be on the eastern side of the state, but Montana's fairly, you know, large. And again, the grand majority of it is very rural and wide open. Mm -hmm. So as you know, this year, we've had all these challenges with the pandemic. We've had uh, regulations and restrictions on certain telehealth uh, issues uh, loosened. Um, so as you moved to telehealth and telemedicine, um, did you have issues with broadband, with connecting to some of that rural population? How did you adapt to that? That's, yeah, that's a good question. You know, thankfully we have a very good HIE here in Montana. So the fiber, one of, one of, the, um, one of the charges of our HIE was to reach all of these rural hospitals uh, out, you know, uh, whether it's on the High Line or, or in other rural communities. And so we were able to tap into that fiber, which really helped us reach a lot of patients. Um, so there wasn't as much bandwidth issue. Now, obviously, you know, we always all, you know, we all want more bandwidth. We want more, more speed, better availability. But we didn't have those issues uh, right out of the gate. The biggest issue uh, that we had was we were on sort of, we were right in the process of transitioning to a, a telehealth platform. You know, we, we had a, have a telehealth offering and then we had our own telehealth services that we were utilizing for our patients because we do a lot of outreach. So a lot of telehealth and pediatrics and psychiatrics and post-operative neurologic stroke care, did a lot of telehealth as far as that goes. But because of that, we sort of had this dichotomy of systems. And so we were in the, right in the middle of the process of growing into one large telehealth network uh, when the pandemic hit. So that really sped up our timeline uh, quite a bit. So we had to become very proficient very quickly, uh, which uh, in a way really helped us as an institution when the guidelines for billing and coding uh, loosened so that we could go primarily to telehealth, which was really nice. I mean, you take, you know, 1,600, 1,700 clinic visits a day here in Kalispell, you know, as a network, and you move them to 
uh, tele, there's, there's going to be some logistical issues there. But it really helped that we were already on a mobile platform, right? That was probably the biggest thing I can say. We were already on a mobile platform, so our docs, our providers could already be uh, um, mobile and connect in, in a telehealth. So connecting with telehealth was, 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 was such a small step for us for so many of our docs who, for whatever reason, either had to stay home or clinic had to be uh, adjusted or changed. Our workspaces had to be changed. That was actually a pretty easy, um, I don't want to call it a sidestep. I mean, you know, it, it was easier than if we had, if we had not been had a, had a mobile presence and did not already have a large telehealth uh, portion of our, of our business. So mm -hmm. that was nice. Let's drill down on that then. In the last year, pandemic's been going on. Where has your mind space been? Where has your uh, work hours been most primarily focused over this past year? Oh, it's a good question. Um, you know, when the pandemic first hit, you know, obviously our, our first responsibility is to our patients, to our patients' needs, um, to patient access, to patient safety. We needed to continue to see patients in all avenues of care while trying to maintain uh, safety and protocol. So that was our first, our first real foray was, okay, we need to change how we do business, but still keep the doors open, right? That was kind of one of our, our, our chief goals was to remain open and available for our patients. So that was step one. Uh, step two in the process is, you know, the pandemic really started, you know, in March for, for, for us, but we didn't have large numbers of cases because we are a fairly rural community until June. But we wanted to slow that spread and flatten that curve. So sort of as an example, we offered telehealth services out of the gate, but we also tried to funnel we set up one of our clinics as here is going to be the clinic. If you have symptoms in a primary care setting, that's the clinic you start with. If you do not have symptoms but need to be seen for other urgent matters, uh, fractures, sprains, cuts, et cetera, here is the clinic you start, start with. So we had different outpatient touch points, and then obviously we had our inpatient touch point. But we tried to only filter patients to the hospital who had that acute illness need that could not be met in the outpatient setting to really try and reduce the patient's exposure as well as our staff's exposure because the other thing you have to think about with you know 4000 plus employees is how do we serve our patients how do we protect our patients how do we serve and protect our staff and that's that that's a a difficult dichotomy in medicine because if there are sick nurses and sick doctors right? They can't come to work either. Then we can't fulfill our primary mission, which is to our patients. Mm -hmm. Now, as chief medical information officer, you are involved a lot with data. Um, in an earlier correspondence, you uh, talked about this idea of big data. So bring us up to speed. Give us an idea of where the intersection is right now between big data and healthcare. Oh gosh, it's 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 basically everything. You know, it's it's everything that we do. Every data point that we collect uh, goes into our, our our big data 
registry, reservoir. So we have a data repository that keeps all of our information. And then we have tools that access that data repository that help us make better clinical decisions. I'll give you an example. Um, chiefly, you know, we focus, because we're with CPC Plus, Track 2, which is a Medicare reimbursement program, we focused a lot of our efforts around diabetes, around hypertension, and, and big data helps us to do that, but the analytics tools that we use are essential in accessing and making that data useful. So there's, a, there's as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, there's, you know, there's data and there's information. Right, and so we have to take data points, which of of which are innumerable. I, I would hate to say millions, billions, or trillions, innumerable, and then take that and make that useful, timely information. If you're a practicing physician, <clears throat> or you're a CMIO who's looking at all different levels of of healthcare in your institution, you need to be able to deliver useful information, timely, in a way that's easy to find and easy to use. And that's the challenge for all of us who, who do analytics and who do informatics and who do healthcare is trying to make this useful. There's lots of data points out there, but trying to make the information timely and useful, that's the biggest challenge that we have. Mm -hmm. When you think about it from a more granular level, then we were talking about the big data, you're talking about making it timely, efficient. It just, it's, <laughs> to someone who's not steeped in data, I'm on the word side of things. Uh, I, I almost seem over, you know, overwhelmed when I think of just these, just huge, huge data points here where you're just staring at that. How do you know what to look at? How do you know where to, bridge the, the gaps and the inefficiencies in a medical practice? Well, like, like I said in the beginning, it, it, it all starts with the patient, right? You, you have to start there with, with what your goals are. And, and, and at our institution, as in all healthcare institutions, we're, we're trying to give better healthcare. We're, we're trying to improve the health and wellness of our patients. And during a pandemic, that provide some really unique challenges, but let's start with just the health and welfare of a patient. Um, the first thing you do is you have to take data elements that already have value, right? Uh, you take value like an A1C for your diabetic patients, and you want to track your A1Cs for all of your diabetic patients, and you want to trend those, and that's, that's a useful data point. But then you want to be able to cross-reference that data point with do they have a primary care physician? How many times have they been seen this calendar year? How many times have they been seen in the clinic setting versus say the ER setting, right? And were they seen in the ER for a chronic issue or were they seen for an acute issue not related to their chronic issue? And so you're trying to sort of get these cross pieces together to find the patients that are not controlled well, are not maybe getting the services they need, or could use more help in maintaining and controlling their chronic disease. And so part of that, you know, obviously part of that starts with that partnership 
with the patient and the provider, right? At the primary care level. I'm, I'm a primary care doc, so I'm, I'm biased. But that's, that's where that relationship starts is, is the diagnosis and the strategies behind helping this patient manage that, giving them the tools that they need to manage that, and then helping them on their way because they may be managed very well, and then something happens. You know, the, the only uh, change is, is one of these only constants that we have in life, and so things change, like a pandemic occurs. They're laid off. They don't have insurance. How do they then get medicines? So there's a lot of data points that cross, and maybe something has changed in their life that make their numbers go up, either socially, emotionally, or in pandemic sense, maybe there, there is something environmental that has come in and changed their lives. So really tracking those data points, tracking those patients from, a, from the 10,000 feet level, where you take a large step back and look at an institution and finding you know, the five or 10% of your patients who are struggling at any given time. Then you put a pandemic on top of that, and now that number might go from five to 10% to 30%. I don't know about you, but sometimes diets went out the window during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, thanks for that. Christmas, but you know, it's, uh, yeah. Exactly. No, it's been challenging for all of us, and we've dealt with stress in in different ways for sure. So I want to move towards something where you're partnering with MGMA. You're going to be speaking at the upcoming MGMA Pathways Conference. That's going to be held May 11th through the 13th. Um, Your session is titled Combine Clinical and Business Analytics for Efficiency. Give our listeners an idea of what they can learn, what they can take away from your talk. Sure. Um, Whenever you try and take data, turn it into information, and then making it clinically relevant to where we can help patients, that's why that 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 is the triple crown. That's that that's the holy grail. That's what we're looking to do. Um, The first thing you're going to need to understand about clinical analytics is you have to do the data validation to make sure that the data you're giving is correct. The first thing we had to do at our institution was gain trust. If the people you're giving the data to do not believe the data or there are errors in the data that they find, then then it's sort of all out the window. You're, You're not able to make meaningful change if they cannot trust the information you're giving them, okay? So that's step one. Out of the gate is clean data. So validation, 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 and then putting it in the hands of the people who use it because they're going to validate it better than anybody else because they have a vested interest in making sure this information is correct because they're going to act on that information. And that's very different from, say, the analyst who's just trying to make sure the algorithms are good and then the algorithms are clean versus the clinician who's taking that information and trying to impact a person's life with it. There's, there's, a, there's a, real, a real balance there and real ownership there. So right out of the gate, you've got to validate and you've got to trust the information you're putting out and the, and the providers and the healthcare teams have to trust the information coming out. Mm-hmm. You talk about validation and trust. Um, gosh, 
in the last year, we've seen so much uh, information come out, sometimes disinformation, misinformation, um, as we try to, as consumers, just the regular people out here, we're trying to figure out what do we trust? What do we believe? Um, just in the last week, we've now had new information on vaccines with Johnson and Johnson having some issues. They've been pulled off the market for right now. Um, so as someone who's steeped in analytics, how do you build that trust with whoever your audience is that you're trying to reach with certain data points? Sure, and it has to be transparency. Um, I'm gonna use the voter analogy when it comes to data. If 90% of the populace votes for one person and 10% votes for another person, at the end of the day, you would go with what 90% of the information or voter population says, right? That's what you would do. So in data analytics, if the majority, the grand majority of the information is pointing us towards one way, that's the direction you go, but you do not discount the other 10%. That's gotta be key. You have to say, here's the data in its entirety. Here's what the data is telling us. Yes, there are some differences or there, there, there are some uh, concerns or maybe some, some information that points us a different direction, but the grand majority is pointing us to this direction or this endpoint or this mean. And so because of that, that's how we do with, with, with data to our clinicians. We say, okay, here it is in its entirety. Here's the things you're gonna be interested in. Here's the information that it's pointing to. And then we show them, here's the distractions. Oh, not distractions, here, here's the detractors. Here's, here's where the data conflicts. And we let them look at that. And when they have all the information in front of them, they're able to make a more informed decision. And, and that's really what we have to do as an institution. I may want all of my doctors to do X. I want everyone to do X. But if I come in front of them and I say, all of you do X, and I do not give them a compelling reason, or I do not tell them the reason why I'm coming up with this plan, they're not gonna wanna adopt it. People don't like being told what to do, but people do like being involved in decision-making. And obviously, when you're talking about institutions, you know, it, it's sometimes very hard to disseminate that data to everyone to, at that level, but that's part of the challenge. So we designed dashboards, provider dashboards, in one of our analytics tools. And we said, here is the data. And we let them look through all of it regarding their individual patients. And when they understood that the grand majority of the data was saying this, that's the way they went. And now I have an understanding, a modicum of trust. I'm not trying to, you, you have to be transparent. I cannot hide anything, nor would I want to, right? I mean, you would, you would never want to say, Here's all the information. I'm only going to show you the good information. I'm only going to show you the information that correlates with the way I want you to go. People will figure that out. And when they do, then you've lost your trust with them. And then you will not be able to make meaningful change, which at the end of the day impacts patient care. 
So you have to be absolutely transparent with your data, good, bad, and ugly, and you have to uh, validate it, a, a, validate it before you show it to them, right? Mm -hmm. Right, clean it up before you show it to them, but don't be afraid of what the data leads you to, right? Show it to them warts and all, let them pick it apart as well. They're gonna find little things that you missed or your team missed, and they're gonna point those out. And then you make those adjustments in your algorithm and you make those adjustments on your catchment and you send it back to them and they look at it again. And when they're satisfied with it, they're gonna take that information and run with it. Then when I come out again with maybe, maybe something a little more controversial as far as data, hey gang, we all think we're doing a great job, but this data point says that we're off by 2% or 5% or this patient population is not being as well served as we thought they were, right? And that's when it starts hitting home. But once they believe you, then they're more likely to act on the information they get. So it's, it's, it's definitely a, a balance there, but you have to establish trust. And in order to establish trust, you have to have transparency. And in order to have transparency, you have to have thick skin because people are gonna vehemently disagree with you. But that's okay because our, our entire goal as an institution is the health and well, well uh, welfare of our patients. And so mm -hmm. that's, uh, it's worth it. You make a lot of great points there. So I have to ask you, did you come to medicine first or data analytics first? And oh no, medicine first. Medicine was always okay. my first one. How has, yeah, how has the data analytics side of it then helped you be a better provider? Sure. Um, boy, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I look at information. Um, when we all moved to electronic health records uh, 12, 15 years ago, maybe longer for some, uh, we've been using different aspects of electronic health records since the 60s, whether it's in lab or you know, aggregate data. Um, what I found was when you give the providers information that's useful and timely, it helps patients. And that was always my first love. I, I, I like helping people. I, I like, um, I, I love being a doc and, and having the relationship with patients and, 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 and um, trying to help them in their healthcare and being a part of their lives. I mean, that's, that's the calling of medicine. And, uh, and what I found was is that um, you oftentimes would beat your head against a wall trying to find the right information back when we were on paper charts you'd be flipping through all these things and faxes and scannings and trying to figure out what happened to the patient and where they are now and what data elements you need to take care of them and, and so when we started moving on to electronic health records we sort of traded problems right N now it's easier to find some things but harder to find others and so now we've come up with dashboards that um, have helped us with this process. And, and so I, I found that as we were growing as an institution, I saw the frustrations of my colleagues in a world that was changing and, and for some changing very fast. Um, going, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very, um, very challenging to move from one record system to another or one way of thinking to another. And so I thought, they need help and guidance in this. 
and, and I'd like to help them. I'd like to try and make life easier for them if I can. And in so doing, make life easier and better for our patients. And you know, one of the goals that we have is to get patients more involved in their care. Well, how better to do that than to give the patients the information I'm seeing? We publish all this on their portal. Here you go, here, here is your, your health maintenance summary. Here's where you are with colonoscopies or A1Cs or diabetic foot exams, or here's the last time you saw your eye doctor. And it really helps them in a mobile society to have the information they need to take better care. Instead of the, instead of the physician being sort of the, the place where all truth is in your health care, I want you to be that. I, I want you to have the same information and because so many of these decisions we make in medicine are shared decision making. I want you to have the same tools. You know, obviously interpreting those tools is gonna to take an expert and that's where that relationship comes in. And that's still at the foundation of medicine, period. At the same time though, if you have useful, relevant, easy to understand or at least easy to read information because sometimes things are lost in interpretation. You get sheets and sheets and sheets or pages and pages and pages of notes and it's hard to take the nugget of truth out of that eight page document and say, this is what my physician or this is what my patient needs. You know, um, that's what we're trying to do. And, and again, I, you know, it's, it, this, this will be uh, something that we work at forever because it will be an evolving process. But that's, our, that's our, our, our goal, that's our hope, and that's our aim. That's what we're gonna do uh, with analytics. We're gonna make information more accessible to physicians, more accessible to patients, so that we can help improve health. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we've touched on a lot of topics here. We talked about big data. We talked about data on the granular level data and analytics in the medical practice and then humanizing it by interacting with the patient as well. So for our listeners, um, what are some first steps then? It's just so much information to take in. So where do they start? If they want to get better at either data analytics or data analytics and educating the patient about that, wherever you want to take this, what are some first steps they should be taking? Sure. So, you know, just as the analogy of the patient relationship is there where the, where the patient and the provider, the patient and the doc have, have that relationship, you've got to have a relationship with uh, the people providing your data, right? Whoever that is. If you're a large institution, right, who's your CMIO? Who's your, your data governance? How, you know, how do you interact with them? How does your service line? How does your clinic how does your region interact with them? Because that, that relationship is key because you have to believe what they're sending you, right? You have to believe that. So if you're a large institution, what, you know, who's my voice? Who, who helps represent me? Who listens? You know, that's either gonna be your, your, your CMO, your CMIO, uh, or it's gonna be some type of service line director. Who do I talk to about these issues so that, I can, so that I can get to where I need to be in helping patients? And so, and, and if you're a, a smaller, you know, uh, one or two clinic or, or maybe even just a one or two provider practice, then who's my partner in this? Who, you know, which, which vendor am I using? Which tools do I have? Which teams can I leverage to give me this information? So 
that's that's step number one is establishing that relationship. And I know I I keep going back to relationships, but that's because I'm a, I'm a I'm a family doc, you know. That's that's at the core of my being is the, is the relationship with the patient, the relationship with the docs that I work with, the relationship with the vendors and analytics tools that we use, right? It, it's it's establishing that because in that you start to have trust and you begin to build on connection, right? H how do I do X? You know, and and that's uh, that's that's probably step number one. Okay, that is fantastic. So. Let's switch gears for a final question. I'm getting a pretty good read about what motivates you and what you're passionate about already. Exactly. But, I, you know, for our listeners, so they can get to see a, another side of John Tollerson to understand what you did to, you know, get through some difficult times over this past year what maybe a hobby you had, something you're passionate about, something that inspired you so you can inspire us. Oh, that's, that's good. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to go back to connections. It's the people in your neighborhood. It's the people in your circles. It's your family. It's your church. It's, it's the people in your community. For me, um, you know, I, I have some really good friends that, that help. And, you know, unfortunately, when the gyms are closed, but you need to stay physically active, thankfully, my wife loves farming. So we have a little piece of property up in Northwest Montana. And, uh, you know, uh, it started out with just a big garden and now we have chickens and uh, we got into beekeeping of all things here. A few years ago, my wife got her master's in beekeeping, University of Montana. That's been amazing, uh, fascinating, uh, fascinating stuff there. And so uh, she works a lot with beekeeping and I'm the, I'm the manual labor. I, I move the hives, I move the hay bales, I'm move the water, uh, things like that. I set up the fencing to keep the bears out, things like that. And she recently acquired uh, sheep, and so we shear them, and then she spins the wool. And so there's always something to do on the farm. Uh, I got into uh, regenerative agriculture. I, I love planting things. I like trees, I like things that grow. Um, so uh, we planted a lot of trees, we raised a lot of bees, and. Uh, and then as I mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, I'm gonna try and teach my son how to golf, though this is definitely the blind leading the blind. Uh, we're gonna give it our best shot. But uh, I, you know, for anyone who's you know, struggling, looking for connection, you know, th th there's, you're not alone. There are literally millions of people who are looking to do the same thing. As humans, we, we seek connection, we reach out for it. You have to find something that helps keep you human whatever that is. For me, it's uh, being outside and, and uh, being, uh, you know, involved around the property and around the farm. So. Well, that's wonderful, that's John. I know who to call now when I uh, need to resupply honey at my house. So I will be calling you and thank you so much <laughs> for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Ben. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, John Tollerson. You can hear John speak at MGMA's upcoming Medical Practice Excellence Pathways Conference, May 11th through the 13th. For more information or to register, go to mgma.com slash pathways conference. And thanks to Nuance for sponsoring this week's show. Visit nuance.com DAX to sign up for a live stream demo 
and explore how DAX, Nuance's ambient clinical intelligence solution, can transform your organization. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, There's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com slash analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances in operations. Again, visit mgma.com slash analytics today.